everyone. Good morning and welcome to episode eight of season two of Waddle Partners Market Thinkers series. This series being dedicated to understanding more about big themes or trends that are playing out within the world that we invest. And most of you know, picking a trend, even though not guaranteed uh, to provide success, is it still remains one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful element in portfolio management and growth of one's wealth. At Waddle Partners, uh, Drew and I, at the start of each investment committee, we sit down and the first agenda item is always about themes and making sure that clients' portfolios are exposed to the themes that we think that are playing out around the world. Today, we'll be talking about big data and cloud computing. Our guest and expert on the matter is Matt Fist, Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Jamie. Excited welcome, to be here. Welcome, Drew, co-host and uh, my business partner. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, Matt is a portfolio manager at Fire Trails. Uh, Fire Trails specialises in Australian equities, and Matt specialises in the smaller variety of Australian equities, and they tend to be more growth companies. And uh, growth companies... Uh, over the last five or six years have picked up these trends better than most of their competitors. So uh, we thought Matt was in a perfect position to talk about these two big themes, big data and cloud computing. Drew, do you want to just kick us off and and uh, start the introduction about these two big themes? Yeah, thanks, Jamie. I'm probably not the most technologically advanced person, but um, it's probably a good place to start is with some you know, personal experience in the sector. So sure. everyone had the experience last year using Zoom for, <clears throat> for Waddle Partners when the lockdown happened. It was actually far more seamless than we could ever expect, um, mm. how we could easily work from home within about five days and securely and all of that was because of the cloud so you know we'll go through a bit more detail later but things like <clears throat> the way we delivered reports and advice to clients via things like DocuSign in an encrypted way via the way we store documents through through Microsoft's different platforms um, and uh, the, I think people probably you know simplify it and say that's the only part of the cloud but the cloud is much broader so I thought maybe a good starting point was for for Matt to explain to us what the cloud is is it is it up there up up in the sky above us or is it how does sure it work is. who's connecting to it what are, what are the different parts of the cloud no worries we'll, we'll dive straight into the deep end then uh thanks Jamie thanks Drew it's, it's great to be here and uh, as you say, there are definitely some exciting opportunities uh, in small caps and in particular uh, in, in small cap names exposed to the cloud. So what I'll do here is just go ahead and, and share my screen um, so that I can reference some slides. As, sure, as we do great. Things. There's no clouds in that picture, mate. So what is the cloud? Well, it's, uh, it's a very interesting question and it's actually simple and complex as you want to make it. But the example that you point to uh, just then, Drew, is quite pertinent, I think. The cloud really simply is just hosting what used to sit uh, under your desk, probably in the form of a, a big square-shaped computer box, virtually off-site. Uh, and instead of accessing that via a cord uh, that connects to your computer, you access it via the internet. So, so when, you, um, when Jamie first employed me, I used to have to take a tape home every night. Is that kind of the, the new version? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you guys have uh, progressed a bit. <laughs> um, 
And, and so if I think about what, what that means in a practical sense, uh, when I first started at, at Macquarie uh, quite a few years ago now, we actually used to have a, a little uh, server sitting in the corner of the room. Mm. It was quite noisy. Um, and all our computers had a physical cord that actually went from the computers at a desk to that server. And you, you needed to shut the door on that server because it was quite noisy and quite hot. hot. When you went home. Um, these days at, at Fireshell Investments, uh, you know, we're, we're not the, the world's most technology savvy people in terms of our own hardware, but all we're running at the moment, as I'm sure uh, most of you are at home, is a laptop. And all our applications uh, are based virtually. And in that diagram here, you can see that represented with those servers. So quite simply, all the applications and all the data that I'm accessing isn't located on my machine. Uh, it's more than likely located at a data center, probably uh, out in Deer Park or somewhere like that, uh, or potentially if you're in Sydney, it could be in somewhere like Macquarie Park uh, where there's data centers that are located that are actually containing what used to sit on your desk. Yep. Uh, now virtualized. So the servers still exist. They just exist off, off site really, or somewhere around the world. That you can get your data from. That's exactly right. Yep. Great. <laughs> we'll cut uh, that out. Uh, uh, would you like me to go into uh, some of the associated technologies? Because you know, we hear a lot about all these buzzwords: big data, artificial intelligence, machine. Yeah. Let's just let's. How does the cloud? So we've kind of got the cloud. Uh, how does big data fit into the cloud? Is is that a separate? Is that a separate theme, or is that a separate thing? What's big data? Yeah. So, so big data is, is really quite simple, and it's it's just in the name. It is yeah. increasing amounts of data. It's big data, is it? <laughs> it's, it's <lots> of <laughs> data. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> and when we think about that, uh, there's the three V's. So there's volume, uh, yep. there's the volume of data that's being created. There's the velocity of it, and that is the speed that it's coming at us. And then yep. there's also the the variety. Now that data isn't useful in and of itself. And we've all been in organizations, I'm sure, where there's plenty of data, but we don't actually have the tools or the expertise to analyze it or, or get anything meaningful out of it to, to drive business outcomes. And that's really where the next two buzzwords or themes of the moment uh, come into the equation. So the next one that's listed on the slide there is artificial intelligence. And all artificial intelligence is, is a program that can ingest these large amounts of, of big data it can make uh, calculations and uh, algorithms, and then it can uh, iterate and improve upon itself to mimic human intelligence. So it's not just a static, I take this bit of data in, I take that bit of data in, I add it together. It's actually uh, ingesting the data and assessing the data and making improvements to its own algorithm to produce an improving outcome. And we can go into a couple of examples later on about how that's being applied in fields like uh, healthcare uh, and agriculture as examples. And they say something like the amount of data produced this in 2020 was the more than the entire amount of data in history before it. Is that, those, does that sound like an accurate? I could have made it up, but... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so, there's so many anecdotes uh, that, that get thrown around the place. But, but I think we see it absolutely every single day in our own lives in terms of the amount of data that we consume. Just doing the Zoom call now, uh, two years ago or even 12 months ago, probably would have been a face-to-face -face meeting, uh, yep. which would have been great to see you in, in person, guys. However, um, the fact that we're doing this over Zoom and we're recording it does mean that it has to get stored somewhere. There's also the streaming that occurs as well. And so it's just exponentially increasing uh, year on year. And when we look at some of the new and emerging technologies that are coming out, like, for example, autonomous vehicles, mm. you know, 
the statistic that we quote internally is that an autonomous vehicle is creating four terabytes of data per day. Now, to put that into context, that's about 16 times what is contained on a typical laptop uh, in yep. terms of total storage. So it's just going to keep on going, going, going. And if we're looking at, um, so, uh, sorry, autonomous cars are one part of it. For our clients, what sort of things would they be accessing outside of Zoom that, are, that relies upon the cloud? Um, is it just everything? You know, Netflix, is that on the cloud? Yeah, great question. So from a business perspective, there's applications that we use every single day, Office 365, Outlook and Word, being probably the most obvious that we're all familiar with. In our everyday lives, uh, anyone who's ever been through the painful process of resetting up an iPhone would know that every day we're backing up to something called the iCloud. That's basically Apple's cloud where all photos and videos are stored. And that happens uh, more than likely without most people knowing what's going on. But that data is actually stored in a data center somewhere, probably several data centers uh, to give a little bit of backup and redundancy in case something happens. Uh, and when you transition from one iPhone to another, all you do is provide your encryption details and you've got access again to that same data that's located clearly not where your phone is. And who are the players in that cloud sector? So in, in terms of the players in the overall cloud sector, I think it's really helpful and particularly so from an investment standpoint to break it up into a, a couple of different segments. Uh, and given that we are in Australia, we do have a relatively narrow number of companies, but they are contained within the different parts of those segments. So first of all, uh, when we think about the cloud, we talked about those servers or, or data centers that contain that data that's located offsite or not where we are. There's companies that actually own those buildings. Um, so they're infrastructure providers and that's commonly called infrastructure as a service. Uh, that's one section. But it's just Second, digital infrastructure. It's digital infrastructure on a subscription basis or a, or a monthly basis. That's exactly right. So I can call up. Uh, Next DC, which is a data center provider, for example, and say, look, you know, I've, I've got all this data, I've been analyzing all these companies, I want to buy uh, this much storage and this much compute capacity for the next three years, uh, and I want to pay it on a monthly basis, and they'll house that uh, server for me uh, at their facility. Yeah. And, and that's why we like to say the cloud has four walls, because that, uh, whilst it seems like a very esoteric and uh, abstract concept at times, that data is actually being housed in a building with four walls, and uh, we're fortunate to fly travel been to visit these facilities various times. In, in terms of the second part of the companies exposed to the cloud, there's the companies that actually run the applications that run in the cloud. So that's just software providers. And a good example of that would be someone like a Xero mm. um, or potentially in your industry, someone like an Iris where X-Plan software or Harbour Networth mm. or something like that. And where does Amazon and uh, Microsoft, uh, well, probably Amazon more so, do, do they own one of the, you know, do they own a cloud or are they leasing space within someone else's cloud? Are they building buildings? Yeah, so Amazon and Microsoft, clearly two huge players in the space and have, the cloud really has been responsible for driving the lion's share of their earnings growth uh, over the past several years and that's driven global stock market indices. It's like 30%. A quarter almost, isn't it? Their, their cloud revenue. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's been a period of phenomenal growth and I'm sure we'll touch on it a bit later, but it has accelerated during COVID. They play across the entire spectrum. So not only do they own the buildings, they also provide cloud services. In the case of Microsoft, it's called Microsoft Azure and that's where Office 365 gets stored. Um, and, and they also provide applications that run on those services. So they, they're also segmented 
uh, earlier, there are those very large cloud service provider companies like AWS and like Microsoft. They're playing across the entire spectrum. Mm. And have you got a bit of a background on what? So there, there's only a couple. I assume there's only like ten or twelve data centers in Australia. Yeah. Have you have you got background on what one looks like? What what's uh, what's important to consider in the cloud and and investing companies is is it just a are you just buying property? Um, <laughs> I know a lot of them are structured as real estate investment trusts, which is very different to in the US anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, there are quite a few data center operators in Australia uh, and you know, uh, there probably would be around about 12 uh, major ones, but there's also a large number of quite smaller companies as well. The, the two largest uh, in Australia are actually Equinix and NextDC and they operate facilities across Australia. So they've got facilities in Perth, Canberra, uh, Melbourne, I don't think Tasmania is missing out at this stage, but potentially they'll, they'll have a data center down there at some point in the future. Um, just up on the slide here, you can see a visual representation of, of what these data centers look like, both from the outside and on the inside. So from the outside, uh, they're typically located in a, in a commercial type uh, real estate park, uh, pretty boring. Uh, and on the inside, I can't say they're too much more exciting either. <laughs> what they effectively are is giant secure fridges with a lot of access to power uh, and co that consequently provides the cooling uh, and also a high degree of security as well. When you're off outsourcing data from any sort of business, clearly security is, is a major concern. And when it comes to, to major corporations like the ATO, for example, uh, you know, there's a high degree of security required. Um, so so that hopefully that gives you a bit of a flavor for what a data center actually physically looks like. On that, uh, that second picture there, that's what you see as you walk through the different floors of that building. So it's just racks and racks of basically what we used to have sitting underneath our desks um, that's doing the compute and it's doing all the processing um, that we're instructing it to do from our laptops. And how important is location? So am I walking past one in the city? Um, or, or does it have to be in a reasonable, is it out in Dandenong or something for? Yeah. In terms of location, there's uh, quite a different a number of types of data centers. Uh, and it depends on the application that you're using, the data center that you choose for location. So for example, this Zoom call, it's likely that it's being hosted at a location that's quite close to offices because latency is really important because you want to be able to see uh, my facial expressions uh, and you want to be able to, in real time, hear what I'm saying and, and judge the tone of my voice. So it's quite important. But you can imagine for another application such as, retrieving uh, some photos that you might access on Facebook once every five years. Uh, that, that's not a latency or, or time sensitive issue. It doesn't matter if there's five or 10 seconds of lag in retrieving that information. And so in that instance, the location of the data center isn't so important and it's likely to be located on some cheaper real estate. Um, and so for example, in, in Sydney, the more um, expensive uh, and lower latency or faster speed data centers located quite close to the city um, in that North Shore zone. So places like Macquarie Park or even down near the airport. However, the, the less uh, speed sensitive applications are located uh, a fair way out. Um, you know, it'd take an hour and a half to drive there because it's just, that's where the cheap land is and uh, the speed isn't as important. To get and is the data center the same or do they build them at different specs? 
They are different specifications. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's different mixes of what that, what we call storage and compute um, in those different centers. How long does this, uh, these hardware, the hardware that's internal, how long will that um, last for? Is that a three-year period or a five-year period or is the speed of innovation that in five years' time it would be you know, redundant and we can store the same amount of data on a size of a fridge that we used to do it in a warehouse? Is that happening? Is that a concern when you invest in these data centres? Is yeah. So, so typically uh, what does happen in the case of all the listed data center providers in Australia mm. is that they uh, provide the shell of the building. Uh, sure. But that's effectively like the, the concrete structure you see on the outside, clearly the flooring, the mechanical and electrical and air conditioning systems. Yep. Uh, and the clients themselves actually provide the, uh, the processing infrastructure or those servers. Is that right? The bottom there. Over time, what we've seen, and you're absolutely right, is an increase in the intensity um, and the data processing capacity per square meter in yep. the data centers. And if anyone is interested, they can pull up some of NextDC's investor presentations to see some quite interesting charts on how that's changed over time. But clearly that, uh, that processing capacity per square meter has increased quite substantially. And, and what that means is the amount of power that these centers are consuming keeps on growing and growing and growing. And so there is a natural refresh cycle that takes place. However, it's typically not the responsibility of the, the data center operator, it's the responsibility of, of the client there's a significant cost saving, I'm assuming, compared to, I think, I actually think someone like Iris has their own floor of, of um, internal data for a portion anyway. I'm sure they probably put the rest outside. Um, massive yeah. cost saving doing that versus doing, you know, outsourcing it versus insourcing the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Having the cloud inside. Yeah, there, there is. So uh, there's, there's various estimates out there in terms of what the, the cost saving benefit is from having... Um, you know, if effectively an on-premise solution versus having your data hosted in the cloud. Uh, the most recent one that I've read that was produced by Amazon Warehouse Services cites around a 70% uh, decrease in the total cost of ownership um, as, as a result of shifting to the cloud. But cost is only one element why you shift to the cloud. Um, the other one is, is speed uh, and the other one is flexibility as well because- the Insurance probably helps too. <laughs> What's that, sorry? Insurance probably helps too. <laughs> insurance, yeah. And security, yeah, absolutely. So this is, it's cost is one driver, but it's definitely not the only driver, I think, is, is the best way to put that. If you say one of the big inputs into a data center is electricity or the intensity of electricity, yeah. can you can this data center th fit through a ESG screen if it's using that much power or how do you attack that from an investor's perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So w when we look at a data center, uh, 75% of the um, the uh, cost of goods sold is actually electricity. So it's there a are. huge input and it does, it, it moves the numbers around quite quite substantially. Um, yep. In the case of Next DC um, and many of the other listed providers, they're very good in terms of pro providing that disclosure um, around the percentage of the electricity that is green uh, and clients. Um, yeah, so they buy green electricity. That as well. Yeah. And uh, anyone who's, who's driven along um, the Westgate and into the city in Melbourne, as you look out to Port Melbourne on the left-hand side there, you can actually see an XDC facility and you'll see all the solar panels lined up on top of it. 
sure, I'm sure that'll power two racks. <laughs> I was going to say that there can't be enough power coming in from those to power the whole thing. <laughs> but, but, but nice visuals. So yeah. when you buy, who pays for the power? So if I buy two racks, I have to fit it out. So I buy all my equipment, bang, the pipes come in, store my data, and then um, I'm paying next DC for, to have my racks in there, it's air-conditioned, it's security, the power bill, do I pay the actual power bill that I draw or do I just pay next DC a fee? And the, the risk of power pricing, is that next DC's or mine? Yeah. So in your case, Jamie, the risk is, is uh, all on next DC. Okay. Um, Water Partners, uh, you know, whilst it's a, it's a fantastic organisation, it wouldn't have the scale to be able to buy in such a way that you'd have a contract where you have that power pass-through agreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, if you're a very large customer... Um, potentially an, an Amazon, who is also yep. a client of Next DCs, um, then they would have that power pass-through mechanism in their contract. So if you're a small customer, Next DC, where's the risk? You pay a fixed rate. If you're yep. a large customer, it's a, it's a pass-through arrangement. Got and, it. and the sector's growing quickly in Australia. I saw something like 30% growth in in just um, sales revenue at Next DC and estimates at 15 to 20% in the sector in general. Is that understating it or...? It's, it's really quite specific to the individual region. We've already talked to, uh, you know, the North Shore region in Sydney and also the region out west where you have different types of applications that are being used for different purposes. Um, so the speed of growth is actually higher in um, that, that North Shore zone that we talked to where you're closer to consumers. Um, however, broadly, yeah, that, that, that growth rate is quite consistent. The amount of data that's being processed through data centres is growing at about 35% per annum at the moment. Uh, and revenue, because you do get some cost deflation at the same time, is running at around about 20 to 25%. And when we look at our forecast for, for next DC as an example, we're looking at uh, EBITDA or earnings before interest tax depreciation, amortization growing around about 30% compound over the next five to six years. So substantial growth um, in this sector. A bit faster than the economy at three, <laughs> three and a half percent. <laughs> so it's considered a growth stock then. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it does make it challenging from a valuation perspective. Um, and it really does require you to, to look out uh, 10 years and do a detailed discounted cash flow model uh, to, to come to terms with the valuation on some of these companies because um, we're certainly not the first people to discover that this is a great investment thematic. And we, it will change over 10 years too, right? You, you, you wouldn't expect us to be sitting here in 10 years' time and talking about data centres in the same way we're talking about them today you know um i assume some of the uh, there has to be a cost benefit of outsourcing data being stored by say a next dc versus doing it yourself you would imagine that the pipes that you know take the data will substantially improve over that 10 years or the packing of the data within the pipes will be improved so you know can you use a data center in in Pakistan, that's the same, you know, is the same as the one that's down the road, maybe. So it, it is a obviously a, a really changing landscape. It's exciting one, but it's changing at a rapid rate, isn't it? So yeah, it is absolutely, and it's um it's, it's challenging for infrastructure investors because you're investing in a, in the technology sector, which, as you point out, is 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 moving so rapidly and growing and changing. But you're investing in a, what is really, in the case of data centers, more of an infrastructure style asset 
whilst you do have that fast growth rate. So you're investing in you know, a physical footprint of that. So um, keeping track of these these trends is going to be incredibly important for investors going forwards. And um, you know, as you point out, access to to cheap land and cheap electricity does make for an extremely attractive um, place to build a data center. Even though it's physical property. Typically, it's hard for it to be used for something else, isn't it? I mean, it's just a warehouse. But if you strip one of these back and try to rent it or sell it, you're probably selling it at one-fifth of the cost than you would as a data centre. Yeah, I definitely think that's a fair assessment. I mean, one of the... the you know, what we're so excited about um, data centres and have been now for the best part of seven years is, is the, a couple of things. Firstly, you're, you've got some of the best clients in the world. So you've got people like Amazon and Microsoft as your large clients. And then you've got a really great spread of SME businesses and mm. medium-sized businesses like News Corp, for example, as well. Mm. They're really sticky because it's hard for them to move. They're long-dated contracts. It's fast-growing. You know, these are just fantastic businesses. Mm. And consequently, they trade on, on, on high multiples. So if you were to just try and realise book value for the land or the, the building, um, you'd, you'd be selling at a discount. Yeah, basically sure. every time that they extend you know if they make their warehouse bigger or if they add a new one it basically sells out in a reasonable amount of time doesn't it it just there's just constant demand for it at the moment yeah there is constant demand and it's a it's a challenge because uh you've got an industry that's going really quickly and you need to be delivering uh to construction timelines as well uh and there's been several delays uh that have been well publicized throughout the last couple of years where there's been typical issues that exist on building sites. And actually there's been clients like Microsoft and Amazon moving into half finished buildings because they, they physically need that capacity. To stop. I like it, but that's not the same for all companies, right? Next DC is phenomenal. And they've obviously got a great lion's share of the market, but you know, without naming names, there's other ones in Australia that have data centers, you know, even the, the, the Balti bridge, there's a data center right next to next DC and it's uh, two thirds empty. You know, they can't get anyone to take the racks. So there isn't just build it and they come. You have to also have the elements of, you know, sales and propositions and relationships and contingencies because there is, you know, um, and you would know this better than me, there is uh, a number of those data set companies that are just struggling because they can't sign people up. Yeah, I think that's um, that, that's definitely fair. And, you know, when we look at what the competitive differentiator for a data center company is, company A versus B, it really comes down to having that that sales force, as you point out, yeah. but having the network and ex- pre-existing customer trust, having trust, attract everyone to go into your center um, because there will be some stranded assets out there. So um, th- that's one of the reasons why we really like Next DC uh, because they do have what we call an ecosystem where they've got a sales team, they've got a, a large amount of pre-existing customers that actually uh, acts to attract more customers to the business. I assume it's one of those contracts that you wander in and you sign up, uh, you know, it might be a, a, a minor amount, you know, it might be 50000 or $100,000, but it's based on volume. So, you know, three years later, you go back and go, oh, my contract's $5.7 million because <laughs> the data is, you know, you're just growing at that massive compounded rate. And uh, it's not just that, you're also adding other applications and other ways to use data. So, yeah. Um, yeah, sounds like a great place to be in. What's the risk that someone like Amazon builds their own data center here? Or we're not big enough, and yeah. and we don't warrant it. Is that kind of a? Uh, so Amazon and uh, Microsoft and and plenty of other of the large, larger cloud service providers do actually have their own data centers, and Amazon does have their own data centers in Australia. Um, so 
when they're assessing whether or not they um, for external clients or just for their own. What's that, sir? They don't do external. It's more for their own. It's for their, their own, own business. Own. Yeah, yeah. For, oh, it's for Amazon warehouse services. Yeah. So they they do have external. Yeah. So when you what go to Amazon external? store, it's yeah. Yeah. Amazon Amazon store and and you can use Amazon as your cloud provider. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, this is really into the weeds and definitely not on our agenda, but when you buy the rack, right, is it like the old server that you had out the back that Drew used to change the tapes for? Does it have, you know, a hard drive and a motherboard and a CPU and is it is it exactly the same as that or has that technology moved on now and it's um, it's totally different? It's, it's so specific to the client. Uh, it yeah. really depends on exactly what that rack is being used for. You know, yeah. it could be just being used to to store photos. It could be being used to house, um, you know, Netflix streaming content, or it could be being used to mine Bitcoin or perform AI operations for a healthcare operator. So that, mm. ex exactly how the box is configured and the types of chips and the processing units that are in there will depend on the application. So, um, you know. Uh, so that's a way to play the cloud as well, essentially, is if you go, you know, to NVIDIA and I assume most of the, well, a lot of the stuff in these data centers is produced by, you know, Intel or NVIDIA or the like. So you can play it by the devices as well. You absolutely can. Unfortunately, there's not many guys listed in Australia, but the likes of Cisco and Juniper and yeah, okay. all those kind of guys are, are definitely, um, you know, have been big beneficiaries and will continue to, to, to be so. Is there's there anyone one... else in Australia that supplies product into the data centers? You know, is there cleaning services or, you know, security services or? Origin. <laughs> oh, definitely electricity <laughs> providers. Origin, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that means that makes Origin a tech company. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> put on a revenue model. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Cheap, yeah. Cheapest tech company in the world. <laughs> well, the, I mean, we can talk about elect uh, the electrification thematic maybe in another webcast, but um, the biggest constraint on being able to build data centers in Sydney at the moment is actually the amount of capacity that's available in the electricity grid. Mm. Um, so it's really hard to find a site that's located close to consumers where you can actually access the the grid itself it has um, to be uninterruptible too doesn't it so they need to have a backup to support an electricity network i mean that's not well widely known is it matt that when you get a site and i was in food manufacturing for a bit and you find a great warehouse and you go all right we want to put these x amount of things in this warehouse and you and they go oh well there's only 100 i can't remember i've wiped it out of my mind but there's 150 amps to the to the corner and you go yeah I need 3000 and then they go, okay, well you have to buy it and you have to wait. And it's, you know, two or three years before we can do that. There's a transformer that'll cost 900 grand. That's got to go out the front. You know, the perception of our, I'm assuming our investors would be that you just buy a site and you plug it in and you get as much as you want, but it's not the case with, you know, commercial real estate and electricity. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, uh, when you when you speak to the next DC management team and um, and the cloud service providers as well, they're planning out on a 10, 20 year horizon um, and working with grid providers like obviously the, the state governments, but also Osnet um, and the, and the electricity providers to actually ensure they have enough enough access to electricity. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. 
there's one company I've never been able to understand, um, but I'm not the. Uh, wow, there's it? like thousands. <laughs> I don't understand. There's one I've never been the Buffett where you know if you don't understand something, don't invest in it. I'm more like find out more about it, and yeah. you know if if you did that, you wouldn't invest in anything. Um, Meg Megaport, um, it's involved in the cloud, but I. Still don't really get it. Port, I assume. Yeah, you, <laughs> you have a very, you got a good slide there that kind of uh, probably explains it to to the layperson like me. Yeah, I think maybe uh, before we before we dive into Megapod, I'll just sort of frame it up on this slide first, and then we can yeah. we can uh, we can step down to the slide that I just had up on the screen before. Sure. So um, you, you can see on this slide here that uh, there's lots of different servers, or lots of different data centers in the world. Um, you know hundreds, if not thousands um, globally. And it's really important to be able to actually connect these data centers together and connect users to these data centers. Um, and so there's a big market in that connectivity. So it's not the storage of the data, it's actually connecting the cloud together, um, if, if that makes sense to you guys. And what Megaport do effectively is provide connectivity solutions uh, between data centers and between cloud service providers. Because you're if like this, if you're like the CBA, you don't want to have all your data in one spot. Is that still that kind of concept? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you're a CBA, you're not going to have all your data sitting at NextDC's data center in, in Macquarie Park. You're more yeah. than likely going to have a, a backup site, um, probably in Melbourne, as well as one somewhere else in Sydney too. And it's really important to have those data centers connected to each other, but also connected to the other various applications that you'd be using. So say, for example, if you're a CBA employee, and you're using a, a, a software application, like uh, let's say Xero, uh, it's really important that your data, where you, your data center is, is connected directly into Xero um, and they're porting that data center. So you wanna be able to use that service really seamlessly. So it's, it's effectively just connecting up those different bits of the cloud, right? Um, it's, it's, you can make it as, 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 uh, as, as complicated as you want, but it's that simple. You got this cloud, there's lots of four world buildings everywhere, but to actually make it useful, it all needs to be connected up. And do they do it, do that by software or they're carrying cables from one to the other? <laughs> it's well, cables, it's gotta be cables. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of the uh, power lines in Thailand. <laughs> yeah. uh, so each one of these, um, ports on this diagram represents a, a point of presence or effectively think of, like a, think of it like a data center or a cloud yep. uh, in, in a particular instance. And what Megaport do is they have uh, both the physical cables that join data centers together. And yep. they also have a software that sits over the top of these cables. Um, and what that enables people to do is say, all right, Jamie, um, I want to connect the Wattle Partners um, server to the Firetrail server. I'll go online uh, on the Megaport system, log in, and I'll, I'll say point and click, point and click, uh, and they'll provision that service for me virtually. So we don't physically need to organize that cable ourselves. We can sure. just do it via a cable that they already have. So it's, it's called a software-defined networking service. That is, you've got a physical footprint that connects something together, and there's yep. a software element that goes over top. It works out the most effective and cost-effective and quick route to get my server and your server connected. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. So back in the day, we might have had to call up our mates at Telstra and yep. say, "Look, I want a service," and they'd say, "All right, I mate, did, and we're still waiting." Here's a copper line. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to cost you three thousand dollars a month. You know, you've got a three-year contract, and if you try and get out of it, then we'll hunt you down. 
<laughs> and it's going to take a long time to revision. With Megaport, you can just go online. You can do it yourself in, in a couple of seconds. You pay by the month. It's only a couple of hundred dollars. Uh, yep. so far better outcome for, for consumers and is really necessary. And Rob, maybe that's a good segue. I know you're smaller caps, but Telstra is trying to demerge all their infrastructure. Do they have this kind of these kind of assets behind them as well? Data centers and um, I know they've got a lot of random looking buildings in every part of, the, of Australia. So Buildings with no windows. Yeah. <laughs> There's one in the middle of Adelaide CBD. And it's like, <laughs> is this 20 stories without a window? <laughs> you can't really repurpose it, can you? <laughs> That would be a tough one to repurpose. Although I've seen offices that are worse. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not overly familiar with, with exactly what Telstra are planning, given that that's quite a large cap stock and my focus is, is on the small cap index. Uh, however, yeah. I do know that they have um, quite a number of quite small, but what I'd call legacy data center assets. And, and by that, what I mean is that they've been in place for a long time. They've got uh, lots of um, smaller clients um, who have, uh, software and hardware uh, running it within those buildings. Um, but then as they haven't gone out and created a business like a Next DC, uh, for example, where that, that is their focus. They're primarily yeah. a telecommunications provider. Um, and, and so it does make sense to, to damage that part of the business, particularly when you consider the multiples that, you know, Next DCs and, and the, those sort of assets are trading on versus Telstra proper. Perfect. Any other, are there any other companies? I know we mentioned Newix before and it's not in cloud computing. Um, yeah. Is that something in your purview? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so some of the companies that we haven't talked about, uh, we're, we're focused with NextAC being a data center provider. Clearly, we've talked about Megaport, which provides that connectivity between the data centers. But what we haven't talked about is some of the companies that actually provide the software that runs uh, in, in the cloud um, and so when we think about those sort of businesses, we've got on the ASX, um, there's businesses like Newix that you mentioned, Drew. Um, there's businesses like Zero as an example as well. And then they're really, uh, they are quite different businesses, but very similar in some ways as well. Uh, and that is that they actually have their main IP is a, is a software asset. Um, and when we look at these types of businesses from a small cap investment perspective, um, they're clearly quite attractive that is because of the, the high level of IP, uh, but also because of the strong margins that they generate, typically 70% plus gross profit margins, uh, and also the recurring nature of that revenue. Um, in, in the case of Zero, for example, we've seen over time that um, that subscription base is extremely sticky and, and does tend to grow as people add on more and more and more uh, modules to, to their subscription base. Like the picks and shovels or the service providers to the you're basically finding the people that make it easier for consumers to access these major technological advances absolutely yeah that's right i mean uh, prior to this webcast uh drew i think we we're talking about um some of mike cannon brooks quotes and and him basically saying that every company in the world is uh is, is going to fit into two buckets and, and that is they're either going to become a software company um or they're going to be disrupted by one and when I look around our own business and I'm sure your business as well, I definitely think that that is the case because what software does is it enables us to operate uh, with far more productivity, um, you know, provide better client outcomes, do things faster with less costs. Um, and software is, is just been such a strong driver of that. And if you don't implement these solutions in your business, like zero, like Salesforce, and you're stuck on the, stuck in the old world running an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> from a box, then you're just going to get left behind. Um, so I think there's a great deal of truth to that. Yeah, I think we're 
reasonably advanced, but we're still, we'll be nowhere near a, the way an Apple or someone would work, you know, where everything's seamless. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, nor should we be because we don't, we're not a trillion dollar company, but yeah. Um, yeah, using as much cloud as possible and, and simplifying all your internal processes. So we're leading financial planners, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Typically, we're a pretty backward lot. So <laughs> it's not that hard to lead them. Yeah. I think um, and another important, important point here is uh, Australians are typically look at our index and say, you know, there aren't these great investment opportunities. And there's a bit of a tendency to say, if you want to invest in technology stocks, you need to look at the NASDAQ and you need to look at the, the Microsofts and the Apples and the Amazons and that type of thing. Sure. But what's really important to recognise is we have some great homegrown technology companies here. And Australia is actually quite advanced um, in terms of our own businesses in, in adopting technology. Anyone who's been to the US and tried to do business over there would understand just how advanced, advanced many Australian businesses are. Sure. Um, and, and companies like Xero, companies like Megaport, these are relatively small in a global context, but they are truly world-beating companies in terms of the, the services that they provide. And um, they're some of the fastest growing companies um, when we look across all markets, uh, NAS, NASDAQ included. And um, I think it's also relevant that Atlassian was, was grown here in Australia as well. Um, so, we, you know, we do have a great technology scene here and we do have a lot of really great cloud-exposed companies. Yep. I think why I've, do you think uh, that's the case? What, why do you think? Is that because we're essentially isolated from the rest of the world so we have to kind of leverage tech or, uh, you know, essentially what, why do you think that we're pretty good at tech? Oh, it's a, it's a good question. I, I don't, I don't really. Uh, it's not something I've thought about, to be honest with you. I mean, yeah, uh, Australians, uh, we are quite colloquially and pretty sarcastic. Mm. Sure, you guys are a bit different, but uh, I think that we also have an element of entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism, and people like Bevan Slattery, for example, up in Brisbane, who's been a serial entrepreneur in this space, starting companies like Megaport and NextDC and Superloop. Um, we've had a couple of really strong entrepreneurs come through and. Um, you know, transforms the, the local sector. Um, it's awesome, isn't it? I don't really have a good answer. Sorry. No, no, it's good. It's fine. I, I mean, uh, ultimately, it's it, it's a it's a good thing for Australia, isn't it, to be entrepreneurial in in technology. That technology then can go to the world. So yeah, no, absolutely. Um, what else are we talking about, Drew? We've got uh, so. Big data. I mean, big data is really interesting. And we, Drew and I came across big data for the first time. I acknowledged that big data was, and I've said this a couple of times on our podcast, Drew and I were in a Pinebridge conference and we heard the CEO of Ant Financial talk about how he's building a financial services business under Alibaba. And one of the things he was talking about is assessing uh, home loans or assessing credit from just big data. And he talked about the old system of getting a home loan or getting actually it wasn't a home loan. It was just a credit facility um, for, for a trading company that's on Ali, Alibaba. And he, he said, well, the first thing you normally do is uh, fill in an application form. And then there was some amazing stat that, you know, 75% of people fill out an application form for a loan and we won't use the word fraud, but let's just say extend the truth on the application form. But if you use big data to assess that person and, you know, obviously Alibaba had their trading history, but then, you know, you're educated and you're, you know, in a certain suburb and you've got a certain education, you're certain health and you're a certain, and you can get all that data from the web. Um, 
uh, and then profile and you can use some kind of AI to assess all that data, you could, you, you could, and uh, they were using it back then, which is three or four years ago, you can assess the credit, credit worthiness of an individual like five to six times better than you can having a credit team look through an application that typically will be you know, stretched uh, in terms of truth. And that was, you know, quite amazing. And then what he was doing on his system is then doing automatically for everyone that had a CMT and applying a credit amount, a pre-approved credit amount in the right-hand side. And if you wanted it, you double-clicked it, signed these terms and conditions, and you've got access to credit. But, you know, that's a, it's a really interesting use of big data. Um, and we haven't talked about big data much. Do you see other groups using big data or big data is just really in every business at the moment that are all striving to get, you know, who's clicked what, um, how do I, what's my return on investment from advertising? You know, how do I sell Salesforce is of course really good on big data. Yeah, no, it's, it's all, all, all good points. Um, from a from a home loan perspective, you know, definitely there's been a number of companies come to the market just in, in the last six months, actually, that have used this as a point of differentiation, effectively saying we can lower our credit losses, more effectively target customers with a better rate to grow our books because right. we know about them. Uh, and, and that's a great use case for, for big data and machine learning. Um, I would say that if you download any ASX 200 company presentation from the last couple of reporting seasons and you do a word search for big data or artificial intelligence, you have to assume that every company in the ASX is a technology company. But I think there's very few that are, are truly, uh, you know, actually doing it rather than just using these buzzwords. Um, Who was that group, Drew, we were talking to the other day and they use AI to analyze um uh, announcements by companies and where as soon as they see the company's words change as soon as they see tone tonal changes or repeating of words they kind of start smelling if you like a, a downgrade or that they're trying you know if it's going to the ir firm the ir firm's trying to talk about things that aren't relevant um and you know it was it was essentially a example of using um kind of big data, AI, and machine learning to a degree to, to assess the written word from individuals. Yeah. Um, so yeah. do you remember who that was, Drew? I can't remember. I know there was someone talking about um, announcements from the CDC regarding yeah. COVID. I'm not sure if it was that one, where mm. the, the wording slightly changed and that mm. kind of... <clears throat> but I wish I didn't have to read annual reports. So <laughs> if you can send me the technology, I'd love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's find it. There was an experiment done. Uh, someone tried to build an algorithm to analyze Donald Trump's tweets and actually trade off the back of that. Sure. <laughs> There's no algorithm. Imagine algorithm. <laughs> There's got to be a set pattern to be able to uh, to yeah, build an algorithm, right? So. Yeah. Maybe it's a bit, bit too uh, bit too random for these. Yeah. But uh, just in terms Drew, of, of and and Jamie of other. Uh, like relevant examples on the ASX where big data is being used really effectively right now. I think a, a really interesting one uh, is radiology. Uh, so you'd be aware of some of the listed radiology companies. Um, one is Capital Group. Uh, and what they're actually doing now is using um, big data to analyze the images that radiologists receive uh, to identify issues. So yeah, traditionally, you just rely on a radiologist looking at a scan and saying, you know, uh, Drew, I think, you know, you might have something bit, bit strange going on there. But now they're actually doing that with a, uh, an algorithm that's ingesting the data and, and, and performing a second check. 
Uh, and what that's done is really increased the efficiency by around about 30% in some cases for the radiologists. So it's enabling them to basically get the patients through faster, provide a better outcome. Uh, and it's all enabled by that use of big data and machine learning. So that yep, first step of that, which a cloud probably provided was Telerad, wasn't it? Where basically you would get your x-ray read anywhere in the world 24 yep. hours. You didn't have to have the radiologist in, you know, in, in the hospital in Melbourne. It could be in, you know, Shanghai or, or, or Chicago and they could read it. So now they're using that kind of digitization to then put AI over top and to see if they can see anything else that, uh, yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's fascinating. And over time, as you can imagine that, as you calibrate that system and it keeps on itself learning, the algorithm, it gets better and better at identifying different issues. Uh, mm. So that missed. Yeah, exactly. Um, because, it, it, you know, people can go back and say, hey, machine, you missed this, you need to get it next time. Yep. Uh, and, um, yeah, over, over time, that system... Unlike a doctor, you can't say that to a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Drew's wife's a doctor. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> she's probably heard that and she's about to walk in. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, good. All right. Um, I think we've, we've spent uh, nearly an hour, Matt, and I think it's a great intro to this theme. And the theme is sometimes it's hard to pick the specific stocks that are attached to the theme, but these are two themes that are nearly affecting every company uh, in the world in one way or another at the moment. So super interesting chat. Uh, really like the focus on Australian small caps um, where you know people can uh, see and breathe and feel, feel the companies we talked about today. Um, so really appreciate your time, Matt. Um, thanks very much. Hopefully you'll come on again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for uh, having me and it'd be great to be back at some point. Yeah, no thanks, problem. Man. Thanks, Drew. Thanks. Cheers. See you guys.